this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. So, what's your biggest question when it comes to selling your company? You know, when I ask that question of other entrepreneurs, I hear things like, how do I avoid an earnout? When's the best time to sell? How do I create a bidding war? These questions, along with many others, inspired me to write the book, The Art of Selling Your Business. It's a field guide for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. I've taken all the best practices from the 300 plus interviews I've done for this show and distilled them down into an action plan for you. You can get it along with some gifts from my listeners when you go to builttosell.com slash selling. Welcome to another edition of Built to Sell Radio. This one is a little different. It is Built to Sell Intel, where we unpack four of the most recent stories I've heard on the show and tease out some cool insights for you, hopefully some transferable things. And my co-host and partner in crime, Jeremy Weiss from Rise25 is going to lead our session today. Jeremy has done thousands of interviews with entrepreneurs and is well-suited to lead this conversation. Jeremy, over to you. Thank you for having me. And I'm excited because this is the recap of the biggest takeaways from the month uh, from Built to Sell Radio. And John, you know, you're going to overlay your thoughts and advice, which I'm excited to hear because you do a great job asking the questions and listening. But everyone, myself included, want to hear your thoughts overlaid on these episodes. If you don't know John, John Worlow is the founder of the Value Builder System. It's a simple software for building the value of a company used by thousands of businesses worldwide. And the system incorporates several diagnostic tools, including the Value Builder Score, and it's offered by the global network of your independent advisors, the certified value builders. And John, I wanna point one thing out, which is those businesses that achieve a Value Builder Score of 90 or greater are worth double the average performing business. So people should check out Built to Sell. They can fill out their score there. And you can check out his best-selling books, Built to Sell, um, you know, and obviously the Built to Sell Radio, um, which is ranked by Forbes as one of the world's you know top ten best podcasts for business owners. The Automated Customer and the Art of Selling, all of those. And he's going to overlay all of those things on this episode today. But if you have questions or you want to check out more, go to builttosell.com or builttosell.com/radio. The first one, John, is Ben Leonard. Okay, so Ben Leonard. It's kind of a you know a sad story to start. He had a heart problem in his 20s, and his doctor said you can't work out. So he cleared out his gym bag. He noticed some of the accessories were worn out prematurely, and this sparked his idea. And he borrowed a thousand dollars from his dad, ordered 250 skipping ropes with the Beast Gear logo on it, and three years later, he turned that over into a four million dollar business, 95 percent, which was uh, which was an Amazon. So. I love for you to talk about what your thoughts and likes about Ben's story. Man, there's so much to like in this story. And, you know, one of the interesting things about Ben uh, is, he, first of all, as a young guy, as you described, he went through this terrible episode with a heart condition. He's fine now, by the way. Uh, but it, it did trigger this idea 
And so one of the things that struck me is how much of a guerrilla marketer Ben is and just how scrappy he was in the beginning. And I, I'm reminded of uh, the, the story he shared on the episode where he talked about how he would get people to tag uh, Beast Gear, which was the name of his company, on Instagram when they were using his gear to achieve something extraordinary, like a personal best in some you know squat or bench press or whatever. And if they tagged uh, Beast Gear, Ben would reach out to them directly, personally, First of all, he'd like the post on Instagram, not surprisingly, he'd comment saying like, great lift. But then he would then look at the person's profile and try to find something kind of noteworthy about the person who had the personal best. And then he would private message them. And he would say, you know, amazing job on your lift. It's great to see. And he would kind of try to draw something out of his personal profile. And then he'd build up a bit of a dialogue with this person. And then eventually he would say, listen, it would mean the world to me if you'd consider reviewing us on Amazon. And of course, that's how we built up incredible five-star ratings on Amazon. And I asked him, like, what were, like, what was going into that sort of idea? And he, and he was like, you know, like Nike and Reebok are not doing that, right? They've got a marketing director who has a whole team of marketing managers and marketing coordinators, and all of them think they are, you know, God's gift. And nobody has the scrappiness to really get into the trenches and do that kind of blocking and tackling, but he did it. And it was a huge, you know, differentiator for his brand and enabled him to create this incredible five-star following on Amazon, which as you said in the introduction, led to kind of a huge channel for him. Like not more than 90% of the sales were on Amazon. Stuff that ends up not scaling ends up scaling eventually, right? Because you know, just that foot on the ground. Um, there was another part, John, that you were digging into with him, which he was up against a behemoth in the space, and mm -hmm. uh, there was a protection thing. So I, I wanted to hear your thoughts on, you know, you were asking the questions, and there was he had a patent in place, and um, what your thoughts when he was kind of sharing that story about he had to kind of go head to head with a behemoth. Yeah, you know, it's it's tricky because as entrepreneurs, I think one of the things we always think about is we have this really unique idea, right? And it's and we got to patent it or trademark it or protect it in some way. And I think we can spend a lot of cycles doing that. And until the product or service or idea or or you know name has any traction, it's really not worth protecting. And and yet he did have some. Um, uh, some traction. And when he was accused of using someone else's IP, he defended himself and he hired a very fancy lawyer and, and ultimately was successful. I, I think there's a delicate balance here between thinking about what you need to protect and not getting obsessed around protecting intellectual property that is never going to see the light of day. I'm reminded of Shipper B, one of the episodes we talked about last time, uh, Jim really protected the methodology he used. If you can't remember the episode, uh, Jim Estelle built out a kind of an Uber for your packages, right? Like you could uh, you could use a, a mobile app to order up a package to be shipped. 
and he built this kind of shipper bee hives technology where he had these hives in place all around the uh, Southern Ontario. And he protected that idea. And it turned out that he spent more than a million dollars protecting that idea. And it, it, it ultimately was one of the things that gave him what we call at Valuable, their monopoly control, kind of a protected idea. Um, but again, if you spend too much time with lawyers protecting ideas that are never going to see the light of day, it can kill an idea before it ever uh, gains traction. So I, I don't know that I have any intelligent advice for entrepreneurs on this point, just knowing that it, I think it takes a bit of intuition and maybe a bit of common sense to know, hey, this is something that's differentiating for us. We're not going to go away from this anytime soon. We better protect this name, this brand, this trademark, whatever. Yeah, you're saying, you know, keep it on the roadmap. And when you get enough traction, you may not want to do that from the get-go, especially if, you know, you, ha you have a limited amount of cash to do it. You know, in the case of Shipper B, he had some backing, he had his own personal funds, so he can kind of risk that if he wanted to. But in this case, you know, Ben was really bootstrapping this business and um, parlaying it. Yeah, I mean, the classic sort of, you know, it's a bit of a cliche, but every young entrepreneur thinks, oh, I've, I've got a brilliant idea. Uh, I don't want to tell you the idea, so can you sign this non-disclosure agreement? And then I'll tell you what the idea is. Investors hate signing NDAs because it opens up to, to liability. And so as a result, it kind of kills the idea before it even can gain traction. And of course, the ultimate protection for your idea is going to be customer loyalty, right? I mean, when we talk about monopoly control as one of the eight drivers, we talk about this idea that when customers prefer your product, your service, your brand, it gives you pricing authority. And that's the ultimate protection uh, is when customers are loyal to your brand. And again, if you need to protect that brand or that name, then then you've got to go through the legal machinations to do that. Uh, but that's the ultimate uh, is when you've got some form of customer preference that is that is seeking you out or loyal to you in some way. And I want to point out, if anyone has any questions throughout, put them in the chat because we're going to address them after each of these individual uh, interviews. So put them in the chat and we will address them. But John, I want to hear, you know, when Built to Sell, you talk about these eight key drivers. You just mentioned one of them, right? Monopoly control, which is how well differentiated your business is. Um, mm -hmm. I want, are there any other at play here? Because you dug a little bit deep with him on the dependency on Amazon. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, that was one that, that admittedly, Ben sort of talked about as a double-edged sword because Amazon, obviously this juggernaut growing like stink, uh, it, it, it was a double-edged sword in the fact that it helped him scale the business very quickly in three years to four million pounds. At the same time, it was becoming more and more of a dependency issue. And so we refer to this thing called the Switzerland structure, where your dependency on a single employee, customer, or supplier, in this case, uh, in this case, a, a platform supplier, if you will, uh, can lead to uh, knock off in your valuation it can lead to to a drop in your valuation because acquirers figure that you know you're going to be too risky and that if Amazon were to change its algorithm or delist you or whatever and they've been threatened you know they've, they've been accused of doing that of course uh, if and, and Amazon if you're selling on Amazon they're going to make you provide Amazon customers the lowest price and if they see you selling the product through another channel at a lower price they're it, in many cases 
you run the risk of getting delisted. And so when 90% of your revenue comes from Amazon, you're not doing anything to disrupt the Apple cart. But at the same time, you live in constant fear that Amazon will change their algorithm, change their search functionality, uh, et cetera. And so it was, again, a double-edged sword. One of the things I learned about Amazon from Ben was what Amazon uses to serve up the search rankings. Because I thought it was all five-star ratings. I assume I love this part of the interview. Yeah, where you dug well, a little it bit. It was so fascinating. Yeah. Because I again I I naively, I've never sold anything on Amazon, maybe with the exception of books. I, I thought the search algorithm in Amazon was determined by the five-star review. In fact, it that is part of the algorithm, apparently. Uh, but another two factors that are important are your add-to-cart ratio. So the number of times your product appears in the search listings compared to the number of times it then gets added to a cart. That's one key metric that drives your search rankings. The other is your conversion rate. So when it gets into your cart, what proportion of the time does that cart holder check out. And those two things are much more important, apparently, to the al algorithm than simply your five-star rating. And I think that was kind of a, an interesting nuance to this interview. But again, it speaks to how much science there is behind the algorithm and how vulnerable, effectively, Ben became to the machinations and the you know idiosyncrasies of the Amazon search results. And I think that ultimately led to what was a relatively modest multiple for his company. He was trading it, he was turning over 4 million UK pounds at the time of the exit. And he sold the business for, if memory serves, around three times profit, uh, which again, Ben's a young guy. He'll go on to have tremendous success and lots of other businesses, but it's a relatively small multiple for a great brand. Had he built the brand and successfully built the brand through other channels, if you'd had uh, retail distribution, for example, or a, you know, a tremendous dot-com direct-to-consumer brand marketplace, you could see a Reebok or a Nike coming along and, and, and gobbling up, him up for a much larger multiple. And so it's this kind of double-edged sword I think entrepreneurs need to think through is that if you, if you connect to a platform, it can help you grow very quickly, uh, yet it can also undermine your Switzerland structure score, which can ultimately detract from the value of your company. So it's this sort of uh, trying to balance these two ideas in place. You want to grow to improve the value of your company, but at the same time, if you become too dependent on a single channel, it uh, it can become a problem. You know, John, last time when we talked uh, the other month, I loved hearing some of your ideas overlaid on the subscription models. So some of the interviews, don't necessarily have a subscription, you know, a subscription model, but I, I know in the automatic customers what you talk about. So for this one, or for all of them, I want to hear what subscription models are at play, so people kind of recognize them, and maybe other ones, some ideas of maybe what you would overlay on um, if you're advising a company, what what they can consider as adding a subscription model onto this, if it yeah, if it I mean. Yeah, in the case of Beastgear, I think there would be a natural, a, a natural kind of line extension to do some sort of protein supplement, some sort of supplements of, of, of because again, that uh, is a is a is a consumable meaning customers who take protein powder before a workout, for example, they they do that every workout, and therefore uh, you you 
you you could create a subscription and many supplement companies have done have done that all the way up to GNC. So I think Beast Gear was a hardware company. It was skipping ropes and weight. I'm not needing pies. a new rope every month, you know. Yeah, you're not exactly. Once you bought one of the high quality that Beast Gear was, you don't need them. But you could take the brand equity, the Instagram following that they had, and say, okay, we've developed a formula for pre-workout, which is what weightlifters take before a big workout, or protein powder for, you know, uh, uh, recovery, et cetera. So I could see that being mm -hmm. a, an interesting line extension for those guys. The smart idea. Yeah, I like that. And then the last is the art of selling your business, the book, and kind of the roadmap for harvesting. And so when we're talking about getting down to some of the negotiation or what happened at the end, anything to, I think he had a 40% earnout in two years or something of that nature, anything to um, point out on, on that part? Not him? a lot. I mean, again, when it came to the sale of the company, the biggest insight uh, for me was the relatively muted valuation multiple. Again, a 4 million pound company trading at three times profit feels a little skinny to me, but again, it, it was, uh, it was 90% of his revenue was coming from Amazon. So, uh, it's easy for me to play Monday morning quarterback and say, Oh, you should have created other channels. It's really difficult. Once you get on the Amazon train, uh, as I said earlier, you can't sell off Amazon at a lower price. Amazon's very, picky about you trying to create a direct relationship with their customers, for example, and can delist you. So I think Ben did a great job. I mean, he got in as a young guy, built a great little, great company over three or four years, sold it for a decent price, and he'll go on to have his second and his third and his fourth business, and he'll learn a ton. And, I, and again, I think that's one of the, the kind of transferable takeaways from his story. We talk about, and other people have referred to it as training wheels businesses. And I, I, I find that it's obviously a pejorative kind of term, but it it refers to, in many cases, your first business is is really where you kind of work out some of the kinks. <laughs> and, and if we if we hold those companies too long, like if you start a business in your 20s and you're still holding it in your 50s, um, you have to ask, like, could you not take what you've learned and and parlay that into a better, more valuable company? I think in many cases we stick with businesses because we could become inert. You know, inertia takes over, and businesses okay, and it's paying our lifestyle and things are good and, and, and yet it's not a juggernaut. And in many cases, we'd be better off kind of wrapping that up in a tidy little bow, selling that company, taking what we've learned and investing that into a new company. And, and, and I think Ben will do that in this case. He'll, he'll go build another brand off Amazon and it'll be a tremendous success. Yeah, totally. I love it. I'm going to get to the next one. If there's any questions, put them in the chat and we'll take them as they come in. Um, so I'm watching for that. And <clears throat> so the next one, John, was Wes Matthews, right? Wes Matthews built high-level marketing, digital advertising agency. He built it to $6.5 million in annual revenue, and it was thriving. COVID hit, and he's like, well, I have 49 staff. Um, there's a lot of risk here. And basically, he, seemed, he received an email at that time that from uh, Todd Tasky that um, he decided to engage with. And... So I'd love for you to talk about Wes's story and some of the, the points that you think would be most important. Yeah, I mean, one of the big ones in any service company is getting off the hourly or daily billing uh, hamster wheel, right? And, and I think Wes did an amazing job of that. He created a subscription model uh, where uh, they, they did digital advertising. And so 
they had their customers who were investing in digital advertising sign up for a subscription. Uh, so in and of itself, that's not necessarily that novel, but I think it's a cool application of the recurring revenue model for sure. They, they kind of subscribe to an ongoing set of, of advertising services from high-level marketing. What I thought was really interesting is he charged a setup fee for access to his proprietary platform. And this is what we refer to at Value Builder as a sunk money consumable. Let me try to give you an example. When you sink money into a platform, like when you buy a razor uh, you know, from Gillette, for example, it obviously makes you loyal to those blades. If you buy and you're a Wall Street trader, a Bloomberg terminal, the physical piece of hardware that you sit on your desk and the, and the keyboard, you're being, going to be much more loyal, obviously, to the information that Bloomberg sells you on subscription. That's referred to as a sunk money subscription, where you're making an upfront investment in a platform. And Wes, I think, knew that intuitively or, or, or learned that. And so he charged his customers a setup fee to set up their platform, the, the, the proprietary platform that High Level Marketing used to serve up these ads. And I think it was brilliant because it makes the customer invest. And it, when they invest, they onboard better, they bet in better. Ultimately, Wes got an 88% retention rate on his customers. And again, and if we have to think about that, that may not sound dramatic for a lot of people, but we have to think about that in the context of the, of the industry Wes was in. He was in the fickle advertising industry. And there is probably no more fickle space than marketing. Right. What have you done for me lately? You know? Yeah. What have you done for me lately? Brand comes in, new marketing director comes in, blow out the marketing agency, bring in someone new, et cetera. Yet he had 88% revenue retention rate year over year. And that just becomes this massive platform of revenue uh, that gives him confidence to build and grow and invest in the company. So, uh, and again, I think part of the secret sauce here was not only the recurring model he used, but also that sunk money investment they made in getting access to the the, uh, the proprietary platform Wes had built. I, I just think it's a great business. So John, I wanted to get your thoughts on the part where um, there was double an acquisition offer without pushing the buyer away. There was a part where he kind of goes into, they come back with an offer, he did not like it, and that there was a whole exchange there. Um, so I wanted to hear Maybe, you know, you've probably heard thousands of times people handling these situations differently. And yeah, I mean, yeah, I think what for me was the big takeaway around the negotiation was that at one point, Wes did walk away. And I mean, there's an old saying among M&A professionals, I can't remember the exact wording, but effectively it, it says that at some point in the negotiation to sell your business, everybody has a walk away moment, right? Everybody walks away from the table and says, enough is enough. I'm, I'm not going to kind of be pushed any further and they leave. And then lo and behold, if the acquirer is serious and you still have a modicum of interest, uh, someone will make another move and the, and the parties will kind of come together. And that happened to Wes. I mean, he was in negotiating in good faith back and forth, back and forth. And eventually he kind of just was pushed too far on some deal term. And I can't remember what deal point it was, but he said, you know what? I don't think this is right. And he walked away. And, and that's, I think, Look, 
it can be a dangerous tactic. Obviously, you can overplay your hand doing that if you do it too early in the negotiation, if you do it before the acquirer is really uh, invested in buying your business, then clearly uh, that can uh, blow up in your face. But if used, I think, strategically and at the right time in the negotiation, I think it it, it can work. And it, it, it did work for Wes. Again, I think what you want to make sure is that the acquirer has made a significant investment in the deal. You know, we think about the deal from the seller's point of view all the time. That's kind of what we do. But the buyer also makes an investment, right? So they make an investment. They learn about your company. They might do some due diligence, which costs them a lot of money, maybe themselves or with a third party. Um, in a lot of cases, a corporate development person, if it's a big you know, organization will have to pitch the idea of buying your company to their board or their CEO. And so they not only spend time, but they all spe spend kind of relationship capital to say, look, I think we should buy this business. I think I can get it for X multiple. And I think it's it's great for for these three strategic reasons. They're, as a corporate finance professional, they're, they're going out on a limb, staking their reputation to get a deal done. And so the more the deal goes along, the more kind of investment, both in capital time, as well as relationship equity that acquire is making in the deal, the more they become vested in getting a deal done. And the more, in a funny way, you might have a little bit of walk away leverage because it's not just a, a superficial look at your company that they haven't invested time in. They're, they're deep into six figures of time and money by the time that you know you're into due diligence, you you might argue you've got a little bit more leverage at that point uh, to say, hey, like stop pushing me around. I'm wondering if it's common. There was a point in there, and I know in the negotiation, a lot of times people have a individual that's buffering both sides, and there was kind of a pivotal point where the other CEO called Wes directly. And I'm wondering yeah. your thoughts on that, if that's common. And that kind of, I think, turned Wes around when you were discussing it with them on the interview. Yeah, I think, again, highly common. So in this case, Todd Tasky, the M&A professional representing uh, Wes, did a great job. He negotiated the whole deal, was the glue that made the thing kind of come together. Uh, but Todd gets to kind of ride off into the sunset, right? At the end of the deal... Todd gets to shake everybody's hand, go out for a closing dinner, and then leave. And the two parties, Wes and the owner, the, the CEO of the, of the acquiring company, need to find a way to work together. And at some point, having an intermediary can actually give people less a confidence. Like, I really need to kind of look the eye, look into the eyes of the acquirer and know that mm -hmm. I'm, you know, they're they're going to honor what they what they what they're saying, and so I think that was strategically wise on behalf of the CEO of the acquiring company to pick up the phone and call West when he was feeling you know when he had cold feet. Now look, I think that can blow up for CEOs if they're too quick to try to work around the M&A professional because the M&A professional, rightly so, will feel like hey, stop you know going around my back to my customer. You know if you want to talk to this deal, talk to me, I'm, I'm the representative. But at some point when the deal starts to fall apart or mm -hmm. it starts, the tension rises to a certain point, um, you know, one strategic phone call can make a big difference. And I think, I think Wes was, was certainly turned around by, by that call from the CEO saying, Hey, I get it. I understand where you're at and take the time you need to, uh, to make this decision right for you.
Yeah. Yeah. That is that art and science. And essentially, you know, it's not like Wes was going to walk away either. I'm sure some people sell their company and then they kind of wash their hands, but this, he was going to stay on and work with this company. So it had to be uh, something where the relationship was solid. You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. So we have the key drivers. You, you mentioned um, the recurring revenue piece, the subscription yeah. models. I mean, that's kind of part of this uh, of why in it was so valuable because they did have the recurring revenue uh, in place. And then we did talk about the art of selling, kind of the negotiation part or anything else with this particular interview that um, surprised you or that there are any other observations one kind of qualitative thing is is i i love wes i love interviews like wes because he's kind of a he, he's a he's a sales guy he's a he's a like he, he's a guy you could share like have a beer with on a patio i mean he's like a real dude and and it's fun to talk to people like that because you know they didn't go to harvard or didn't you know they're not like marred in some Excel spreadsheet and analytically thinking about all the day. Like he's a, he's a guy's guy. If you can use that term, I don't mean to be gender specific, but do you know what I mean? Like he's just one of those people that, that, you know, you look in the eyes and you shake his hand and, and he, and he, he kind of says what he's going to do and so forth. And it's this, this personality type that struck me as being, there's such a variety of CEOs and founders of businesses that there is no one personality type. Like Wes is the kind of, is he's a back slapping beer drinking kind of guy. And I mean that in a really favorable way as, as you know, and then you go to, um, I mean, even Ben is our, you know, from beast gear, a much, much less, sort of boisterous kind of personality, uh, much more measured, perhaps more analytical, thoughtful. And it just struck me uh, at that time of just there are these these very divergent uh, personality types. You know, sometimes we talk about uh, non-technical founders in technology businesses, right? Which means that they're good at sales, they're good at business development, but they don't know how to code. And then you've got technical founders, right? Who are really good on the technical front, but God, you couldn't possibly sell their way out of a paper bag. And it's why sometimes you have a partnership in a technology company. So you've got a sort of front person and a, and a, and a technology person. In the case of Wes, I mean, he was clearly the front person and he had uh, a behind the scenes person. It was his partner in the business who was a real technical you know, person who built the proprietary platform, et cetera. It's just a good reminder that, first of all, oftentimes two person founding teams are more successful than one. It's statistically, you can look at the success rate of, of teams that are have multiple founders. They tend to build more successful businesses than those who built them on their own. And secondly, that no matter what personality you have, whether you're quiet and analytical or you're really kind of upfront and personal, uh, you can build a successful business. And so that that was another sort of qualitative thing I took yeah. away from that. John, um, you you spark my memory. You bring up one of my favorite parts of the whole interview, which I was on the edge of my seat when you asked this question. Okay, you asked him, "What's the risk of the CTO <clears throat> that they could leave after getting enough money?" Right, mm -hmm. because there is a risk there that he's built this with this with the CTO, and you asked him that, and I was just on the edge of my seat waiting to hear what he was gonna say because it, it's a risk if the CTO gets paid enough, well, I'm out, thanks guys, but they help build this company and that, that person's an asset as well. Um, so I'm wondering what made you ask that question and and if there's any thoughts around how he ended up you know, responding to it. 
Yeah, I mean, I think you can become held hostage by your employees. It happens uh, when you've got one employee who's like really important to the operations of the business. Again, when we go back to Switzerland structure, the driver we referred to earlier, it's a dependency on any one customer, employee, or supplier. Employee can be equally problematic. In this case, his CTO was not just an employee. They were also a founder, co-founder of the company. So they had equity in the business. And so that keeps them loyal, I think, and makes them less uh, susceptible to just leave on a, on a dime. However, it, it does mean that the CTO could turn around and say, hold on a second, I want more shares because I'm you know, a more important player. I want more salary. I want more vacation. I mean, they, they can start to hold uh, or lord that power over you if you don't have something that they don't have. In the case of Wes, what, what made that relationship work is he was a great front guy. He was an amazing uh, salesperson, a, a great client person, was, was able to bring in the business. And so his CTO knew that, that he would be nothing without Wes and Wes nothing without him. So there was a, a mutual dependency that worked in that case. I think you, you, you ideally want to make sure that you're bringing some unique skill set to the table that is valued in the overall equation. Um, I think that's that's probably the best partnerships. I mean, we could all go back down the, the list of of partnerships that blow up because you've got two, you know, very, you know, very sales oriented partners, and neither can take the back. You know, they're so narcissistic. Neither can take a back seat to the other, and it blows up. In this case, it worked because I think they had very different yet complementary skill sets. Yeah, but I could totally see if someone gets life-changing money, their mm -hmm. priorities may change, right? I mean, they may go, listen, I want to go sit on a beach. For, I mean, a lot of entrepreneurs, they, they would go there for a week and then they go, okay, I'm tired of this and they'll they'll want to keep going. But that struck me. I love that question that that uh, I encourage people to go check out that episode on Built to Sell Radio because that part in itself, I think, is was golden. And so uh, any questions, put them in the chat. We'll address them as they come in. Um, and the next is Mark Elkman. And this was interesting. John, because he built Fresh Meal Plan, um, which is a meal delivery service for healthy eaters, and he built it to $20 million in just three years. He was in his 20s, by the way. So, and he was on the you know Inc. 500 list of fastest growing companies. He caught the attention of uh, New Heights Capital, a private equity group that focused on fitness and then acquired the controlling interest in uh, Fresh Meal Plan. And um, he still has a minority stake, but I love for you to talk about, and he was pretty open in this about some things he would have done differently uh, in the deal. But um, what struck you in in Mark's story? Man, there's so much in the story. He's he's in this space that it seems like is is uh, is just exploding right now, which is this sort of food tech space where it's the marriage or merger of food and technology. In this case. Obviously, Fresh Meal Plan was a meal delivery service. He would had the unique angle that they were really focused on athletes and people who wanted to eat healthy, you know, healthy, uh, yet didn't have time to make their own healthy food. So they would they'd sign up for a, a meal plan. One of the things that that struck me in this interview was both his historical growth rate as well as his potential growth. And and one of the things, one of the eight 
kind of drivers of your company's value is going to be your growth potential. So, so making the case to an acquirer that you've only scratched the surface of what is possible, that thinking a bit of an, a farm, farming analogy, that you've sort of harvested kind of an acre of land, but there's another hundred acres that you could go you know, harvest as the acquirer, that's a really important conversation to have. And I think many of us as entrepreneurs are tempted to build to the very height of the business where we've sort of harvested 95% of the potential and then go sell the company. And, and, and that's uh, almost always a problem because again, an acquirer is going to be looking at this business and say, great, I'm going to spend a truckload and buying this business. I want to know there's a huge, you know, huge upside growth potential. And so I think Mark uh, did a really good job of making the case that there was a ton of growth potential left. And here's how he did it. He had, uh, as his distribution channel, gyms. He was a, a personal trainer himself and had a lot of relationships with gyms in South Florida. And so he went to the gym owners and said, look, all your gym members are spending all this time lifting weights, working out cardio, whatever. What's really going to have an impact for them is coupling that with really good eating. Uh, eating well is, you know, you can't outrun the fork. It's going to make a whole lot more difference than all this cardio they're doing. And he made the case to the gym owners that he sh they should let him pr provide free samples at these gyms. And so he would set up a little table at these gyms and customers were coming in and out after their workout and Wes would give them a sampling of what they would get in one of his meal plans. And lo and behold, they signed up a ton of new subscribers from this sort of free sampling or demoing event at gyms. Well, it was so successful that some of the other competitors of Fresh Meal Plan kind of got wind of the strategy and started doing it themselves. And so Mark had to up the ante again. He started paying the gyms a small sort of stipend or, or success bonus, if you will, for each new subscriber he signed up through their gym. So they had some skin in the game as well. And it was, it was a great sort of uh, strategy and it had tremendous growth potential because Mark estimated that he'd signed up 5% of the gyms in the United States. He built the company to 20 million in revenue. So, I mean, it was not an insignificant company. They were $20 million in revenue, yet only 5% of the gyms had been tapped, meaning there were 95% left to go sign up these agreements with. And I think that was what for me was noteworthy about this story because it just suggested there's so much more growth potential. And again, that's the case I think entrepreneurs need to make is that they haven't plowed the entire field, that there's a ton of field left to go plow. You know, there was a part that you uncovered in the interview, John, about some of the key relationships he had in the industry. And so I wanted to talk about that and how important that was in ultimately, you know, getting to a deal, I guess. Yeah, he, he early uh, connected. And I can't remember how he connected with the founder of Orange Theory. I'm thinking I, Orange Theory is the name of the... Yeah, Orange um, Theory, yeah. Yeah, just absolute juggernaut in the personal fitness space. Huge. Yeah, I, I've never actually been in one. Have you ever been in one? No. I've no, seen them all over Chicago, but I've not been yeah, in I've one. Seen them, yeah, I've seen them all over as well, but I, I've actually never been in one, so I'm speaking completely out of hand even talking about them. But um, Mark built a relationship with the founder of Orange Theory, and the founder of Orange Theory said, look, I want you to do the catering 
for all of the launch events for Orange Theories in Florida. So every time Orange Theory was st starting a new location, Mark's team was there sampling fresh meal plants. Well, guess what? It, as again, rising tide lifts all boats. As Orange Theory took off, so too did fresh meal plant by default. And so that became an important relationship. It was the founder who actually sold his company, the founder of Orange Theory of Memory Serves, to the private equity group that ultimately bought Mark Elkman's company, Fresh Meal Plant. So these things serve Mark in, in both an operational sort of way, but also ultimately in, uh, in his exit. I want you to talk about gut feelings, okay? Because there was a point in time for Mark that he had a gut feeling there was friction and there was some tension. Yeah. And how do you decipher, okay, is this just cold feet me selling my company or is this actually uh, friction and tension that I'm gonna maybe look back on this deal and, it, and may, wanna make some changes? Yeah, so the, the, the friction I think you're referring to is, is part of the negotiation at the first, sort of final hour of the negotiation. They were going back and forth. I think the, the deal got retraded a few times, retrading, of course, when an acquirer agrees to a certain price and a letter of intent, and then after due diligence, lowers the price. I think he was retraded on, if memory serves, a few times. And so after the second or third time, I think Mark was like, hold on a second, like, do we have a deal or not? Are we going to do this or or not are you know and, and he just kind of felt like he would the, the acquire was sort of a moving target and his gut was nah, this doesn't feel right I, I feel like i'm kind of getting getting the short end here of the stick and i think he made the mistake uh and i think I, i'm not telling tales out of school i think he, he shared on the episode that he, he sort of made the mistake of th saying well i'm sure it'll be better after they acquire us. And it's kind of like the parents who are, or the, the couple who are, you know, struggling in their marriage and think, oh, well, if we have a kid, it'll all be better. Well, of course, that's the worst <laughs> thing laugh, you can do. That, that's like the last thing that happens. You could see the satisfaction. There's some chart, John, it's like for parents, until the kid reaches 18, like that satisfaction then goes back to like normal. But until then, the satisfaction is, it's a lot of stress. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So if you, if you think your marriage is on the rocks before having kids, driving kids, the same thing is true of, 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 of a business relationship, I believe. And that's why I think, you know, personally, I think acquirers do themselves a tremendous disservice by illegitimate retrading. Look, let's be clear. Retrading, when an acquirer lowers its offer, uh, after after committing to a price in a, lot, uh, in a letter of intent, has two flavors. There is legitimate retrading, which happens when a a seller doesn't represent uh, truthfully the state of their company, or uh, takes their eye off the ball during the negotiation process so much so that the results of the company start to diminish. And that's, in my view, legitimate. I mean, if you were, you know, you, you agree to buy a business that is A, and then you turn around 60 days later and learn out it, you know, it's A minus 20%. I think it's fair to retrade on that deal. Illegitimate retrading is where you take the acquirer's emotional commitment to the deal, excuse me, the, the seller's emotional commitment to getting a deal done, you know that they have emotionally sold their company. They've they've told their spouse, they bought the ski house, they've, they've, they've emotionally committed. And you take that knowledge and you 
effectively lower your price for no other reason other than they have they've gotten committed to the deal. And and that's illegitimate retrading, I think, in my mind. And I think when you get a whiff of illegitimate retrading, that they're they're using uh, strategic timing, they're delaying getting back to you uh, for no other reason other than it's just drawing out the process. Um, I think that's when you need to kind of call a spade a spade and say, you know, I'm reminded of, of Barry Hinckley, which was a an interview I did Oh gosh, I think in year one of Built to Sell Radio, you could you could Google Built to Sell Radio Barry Hinckley and, and find it pretty quickly. But he taught me the no retrading handshake, and and I said, what, I okay, what on earth is that? <laughs> yeah, what on earth is that? And he said, he said you go through the entire negotiation, you get to letter of intent, you go through back and forth, you agree to the letter of intent, and before you sign it, you get up from the conference table, you walk over to the most senior person in the room from the acquirer side and you put out your hand and you say, I will do this deal on one condition. Acquirer says, what's the condition? You say, no retrading. And by telegraphing your knowledge of retrading, that you understand what it is, that you're not a neophyte newbie seller, that you've been around the block, that you know this illegitimate retrading happens, you are in many ways getting eliminating 90% of the retrading because the acquirer will often say, okay, the gig is up. This guy knows the, the game <laughs> or this gal knows the game and uh, right. we're not going to get away with a lot of retrading. And I think it, it, it always sort of sticks with, stick with me, sticks with me as, as a, a great tactic to telegraph to an acquirer that you're, you're not a new seller. Yeah. I, I would add a word to Barry's because of what you said is instead of saying retrading, say, as long as we don't do any illegitimate retrading, right? Because right, yes, yeah. Um, but I love that. Yeah, that that's great. Um, so you know, with with Mark, um, there were some things he said he would have done differently, and he said, I, "I don't know if I would have done that deal if I knew I would have lost control over decisions." Yeah, yeah. Also. So the backstory. Yeah, I mean, it's this is a really cautionary story. I think if you're thinking of selling to a private equity group, I think it's worth listening to Mark's story because what happened was that, um, I think, I, I can't remember the exact amount, but it, it's pretty common that you sell sort of 60% of your shares, 70% of your shares, sort of a, a majority, but enough left in the company to make it hurt. And that's what Mark did. He sold the majority of his shares, but not all of his shares. And I, again, I can't remember if it was 30 or 40%, but a, a significant chunk of his equity or his money was rolled into a new entity where he became a minority shareholder in this in his company that he founded and uh after a couple of years the, the he was removed as the ceo of that company and now he is on the sidelines still a shareholder theoretically uh, but i say theoretically because is there any liquidity to those shares? Well, maybe or maybe not. The acquirer needs to want to sell that company. Uh, Mark can't force them to sell their shares to him, uh, for, force his uh, sale of his shares to them. And therefore, he's sort of stuck without decision-making authority um, in a business he no longer controls and can't really decide when they want to take it to market. And when they do, doesn't really control how... Uh, that deal gets done. And so it's one of the downsides, I think, of selling to a private equity group and rolling a big chunk of your equity along. Look, I think it can work out tremendously well. We've had examples um, 
Uh, oh gosh, I'm forgetting her name off the top of my head, but she started a veterinary clinic, uh, sold a private equity yeah, group. Lee Rector. What's that? Lee Richter, I think it was. Lee Richter is her name. So she, you can you can Google Lee Richter built cell radio and hear the story. But she doubled her money in in like a year or two from leaving some equity with the private equity group. So it can work out just the opposite. It can work out tremendously well. But for Mark, I think that the you know uh, it it ended up being a disappointment in the sense that he was removed as the CEO and um, and ultimately re removed as an operator from the business altogether and. You know, now he's sort of left with this big chunk of his wealth tied to a company he no longer controls. So I think that's the uh, that's the potential downside of a PE deal. Yeah, that's what I love about all these interviews, John, is they take the different twists and turns. And all of them are different and all of them take a different path. And um, I want to encourage anyone to put questions in the chat. And that's also if you're listening to this on the actual podcast, attend the webinar so you can ask questions. Right. So make sure you register to the webinar so you can ask questions. Yeah, yeah. the way to do that, by the way, Jeremy, we should we should just make sure people know if you're listening to uh, the podcast, just head over to builttosell.com and opt in. There's like a thousand ways you can opt in, <laughs> but basically there's a free gift package that we provide. When you opt in, uh, you'll get an invitation to this webinar once a month. And so that's an opportunity to kind mm. of ask questions uh, to the extent that you have them live and be part of the, the live studio audience. Yeah. So sign up um, for their uh, email newsletter and get all the goodies. Um, and so before we go to Mike Aguilera, um, which was also a, a really interesting story, let me know if there's anything that surprised you, anything else about this. We covered some of the eight key drivers. We covered some of the, you know, the subscription models. You talk about an automatic customer and we talked about the art of selling your business and a lot of the negotiation uh, overlay with this. Is there anything else um, in this particular case with Mark that surprised you or that we should talk about? No, I think we've, uh, we've, okay. we've nailed the high points. All right. Um, so Mike Aguilera, no, this was really interesting. He's an electrician by trade and over 12 years built gold medal service to $700,000. Now, one day his business partner comes in, he's like, I'm done. I'm quitting. You know, Mike talks him back into the business. And they then go off and grow it to 30 million, you know, $32 million uh, in, in revenue. And they end up selling it. Um, I think it, it five times EBITDA uh, multiple. Yeah, I think and I premium on five, actually. He, he yeah. said he, they sold it a significant premium oh, on five. Premium over, oh, got it. Yeah, yeah. So what sticks out to you um, with, with Mike's story? Gosh, there's so much about this story that sticks out. I mean, one of the things... One of the one of the things I hear a lot from new entrepreneurs or would be entrepreneurs or you know students, young people is they'll say, I really want to be an entrepreneur, but I just don't have an idea yet. Um, and and I think I kind of want to tell them to go listen to Mike's story because you know <laughs> Mike's an electrician, right? Like he started an electric electrical company. He, first of all, he became he was an apprentice, worked for a company that said, like, I don't need to work for anybody, I'll do it myself. And you know, Starbucks, there were coffee shops before Starbucks, <laughs> amazingly. And yet we all have, you know, know the success of, of Starbucks. I think having an idea is a bit of a cop-out, frankly. I think there are there, you know, 99% execution, 1% inspiration. I think it's true. I think you can 
create an incredible business as Mike did in virtually any category. It doesn't have to be sexy. I mean, Mike was plumbing people's toilets. He was, you know, electrical. He was HVAC. It was, it was not sexy stuff. And so that's, that's for me, one thing that, that always struck me. The other really, I think, um, is, is the, I asked him, what was the difference between the first 12 years when, you know, you grew it to 700 grand in revenue? So, you know, a modest success, but took, took a long time to get there. And the next tranche of time where you went from 700 grand to 32 million, like, like that's a big, that's a big jump. Something must've changed. Uh, and, and he really talked about becoming a student of marketing and and i think this is a key lesson for a lot of entrepreneurs i think it's fair to say i don't know you've done a lot of interviews jeremy uh so you could probably you could probably chime in as well but i think it's fair to say that most entrepreneurs have a pretty good knack for marketing they're good at marketing their services selling their services business development you know that 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 skill set tends to be pretty pretty well honed and i think it is in mike's case for sure and I think we run the risk, we actually refer to this at Value Builder as the Rainmaker's Dilemma. We run the risk of overusing that skill set and relying on it for too long. And so I think in Mike's case, he didn't hire salespeople, he didn't invest in marketing, I mean, he was the guy, right? I mean, you, you wanted your electrical done, you called Mike and he would come fix it all up. And, and that was, you know, like he was proud of that. Ultimately though, most rainmakers businesses do reach a plateau. Sometimes it happens at 500 grand in revenue. In Mike's case, it happened at 700,000, uh, where your greatest skill or your greatest asset, your salesmanship or salespersonship to make it gender neutral, um, becomes also your greatest weakness because you're not investing in marketing and you reach this plateau. And so I think that was, for me, one of the most uh, clear examples of the Rainmakers dilemma playing out. And so they got together and decided to become real students of marketing. Um, I, do you remember the part where, where, where Mike's wife looked at a bunch of color analysis? That was a great part. Yeah, talk about that. Oh that I, yeah. Now all I do is I see those colors around the internet or around right. because of what, when you were talking to him. So I'll let you yeah tell the story because I love this part. Yeah, so so they're on this journey to really understand marketing and invest in marketing. And Mike's wife went out and did some some color analysis to figure out what color they should paint their vans. Because of course, HVAC companies and home services companies, like that's a big part of their their sort of marketing efforts is their rolling billboards, which are their vans that drive around town. And so she did a bunch of analysis. She looked at orange, red, green, all that and she found out that apparently, and I, there's some history behind this apparently yellow and black are the ultimate combination of colors that make you stand out effectively and again his uh, idea or the research said uh that it's it's actually comes to us uh, through th through sort of evolution that we are uh, have evolved to look out for the yellow and black of the wasps coloring totally the, the bees, bees and the wasps yellow, yeah. yellow and black we're changing so, all colors of built to sell to yellow and black from now no yeah it's good like now we're all getting, <laughs> we're gonna scrap the blue it's all yellow and black anyways long story short they and I again I don't I haven't validated whether uh, from an evolutionary perspective yellow or black or the we've reason not yellow looked black in the research with this disclaimer no, we've not yeah, looked but. into the double blind survey on that but it does uh, 
point to the, the kind of level of investment they made and investment of time and, and sort of research they, they put into really becoming students of marketing. Anyways, long story short, they painted their vans yellow and black and that became a huge part of, of their marketing. They were all over New Jersey. They were noteworthy. People talked about them, right? And, um, and, and that, that was just one of the many tactics they used to really invest in marketing and I think kind of get them out of the owners, that, that kind of rainmaker's dilemma. Yeah, there was two, I think at the time they had two vans and people were like, oh, I see you all over the place, all over all over the city. And like, well, we have two vans. But that was after, like you said, they painted them yellow and black. So there, there's something to it, I guess. Um, I think they, but I, mean, I think they grew to like 80 vans yeah. or something like that. They, they, I mean, it became a yes. significant, $32 million in revenue. There, was a, there were a lot of vans on the road. Yes. Um, there was another question I love when you asked, and you said, you know, Mike was kind of on his own from a young age, and mm-hmm. and he had a lot of grit because he had to survive on his own. And you asked him, you know, your kids are growing up with you being successful. How do you instill grit in your kids? And I loved this this part of the interview. Yeah, it's. Uh... It's the age-old question uh, because, you know, and I, I've asked this question a few times because I do find it, in particular for parents, uh, it is a really tricky territory to navigate. Think So, you, I mean, everything's available on the internet now, right? So, you sell your company and... It, it is not long before your kids find out and your kids guess. Maybe they don't find out the number, but they, they can probably... <laughs> Guess or back into the fact that you've you've created some sort of life changing event for your family, and it does, I think, uh, trigger this issue of like, are my kids going to be motivated? Uh, will they lose determination because they know mom or dad have a bunch of money in the bank? Um, I, you know, and I, I think it's a I think it's a real. Uh, it's a real thing to navigate. I don't know that I have any pearls of wisdom. I'm just curious what it. answers you've seen across some of the people. Yeah. I mean, there's no right or wrong. Everyone handles it differently. But what are the what's kind of the the myriad of answers you've seen? You know, um, and maybe in Mike's case or any case that would be interesting to to talk about here because it's it's totally a personal decision how you. I mean, even I think Warren Buffett. There's you know, information out there on how Warren Buffett handles his wealth with his kids. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think it's uh, Buffett's famous for saying enough to do anything, not enough to do nothing is the, is his philosophy to, uh, to passing money down to his kids. So enough to do anything, meaning I'll, I'll finance any sort of fancy education you want. I'll, 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 I'll support you to do what it is that you want to go do, but I'm not going to give you so much that you can do nothing. And I think Mike in his case, uh, I think did something similar in the sense that he has gotten his kids off and they're, they're starting their own companies. They're doing entrepreneurial things. And so he's sort of imparted those life lessons on them. Uh, and again, again, this is a controversial topic, so I don't want to get myself in too much trouble, but I'm not a huge <laughs> fan of passing businesses on to kids. That's, to me, this is a very personal thing. Uh, but for me, I want my kids uh, to have their own identity I want them to feel when they're successful, it's because they did something well, not because their dad is give, gave them something or, 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 or provided something. So I, I, I don't want to take that away from them. And so that's a, 
I think the problem with passing down a business to your kids is I think, look, on one level, you know, your kid may take that opportunity and be like, damn it, I'm going to prove to my mom or dad that I'm, I'm worthy. And I, you know, I remember Ted Rogers, who was a big cable magnet in Canada, has the the kind of Time Warner of, of of Canada, and like on his deathbed, he he revealed that he was still trying to prove to his dad that he was worthy of his attention. This wow. is a man who, on his deathbed, was worth billions of dollars, and was asked, sort of, where does the motivation come from? His dad died in his 40s. Like it had been decades and decades that his dad had passed away, but he said, well, I guess on some level, I'm just still trying to prove that I'm worthy. Hmm. And and I thought, wow, what an incisive comment uh, from a billionaire on his deathbed that he's still insecure because he was given his fledgling father's business. At the time, it was like one radio station. And and so I think you on one level, you could have a, tre- a tremendously successful person who just always feels empty, not worthy, because they were given something. On the other level, we all know stories of people who are given too much and they be, you know, they, they, their lives go off the rails because they have no motivation, no sense of self-worth. And, and I just don't know how you thread the needle between those two outcomes. I think no matter what, you, you're going to end up in one of those buckets. And so for me, I'm just not a fan. Again, very personal decision, very controversial topic. I will admit that and acknowledge that up front. But I'm never going to pass a business down to my kids. I just don't see how it works. And so for Mike, I, I think he has imparted his kids with all the grit and determination and entrepreneurialism, uh, but not with the keys to gold medal service. He sold the business. And, and uh, I think that's an important nuance to his story. Yeah. So, John, I know we're right at the end. So I want to give anyone a, a chance to ask any questions um, as we wait for those questions. Are there anything with, um, I don't know, um, maybe with Mike, maybe it's just in general with any of them that um, stuck out to you as kind of an overarching theme or just something important we should leave people with? Yeah, and, and it kind of goes back to what we were just talking about with regards to Mike. Um, you know, one of the things that we know people often regret when they come to sell their business is the loss of of a sense of identity. And I asked Mike about that. I said, like, was that difficult? And he said, it wasn't for me, but it was for my kids. And I said, tell me more about that. And he said, well, my kids grew up on the playground. When one of the yellow trucks drove by, he would be, they would, the kids would say, hey, that's my dad's business. And that kind of filled them up with a sense of pride. Like my dad had the trucks, the yellow and black trucks. And as the business grew and the yellow and black trucks became kind of ubiquitous around New Jersey, it gave the kids a sense of self-worth. And when he came home one night and said, yeah, I sold a business, it was the kids who had the toughest time with it. And I think that's really interesting. I, to the, I've done 300 plus episodes built so already. I've never heard mm. that before. And so I thought that was an interesting sort of uh, twist on the old, you know, losing a sense of purpose when you sell your company. It may not just be you. It could be family members who may feel that loss of uh, identity that comes with selling a company. Totally. John, thank you. Thanks for having me. Everyone check out more episodes on builttosell.com slash radio. Um, they're fantastic. I listen to all of them. And, uh, you know, thanks for having me, John. Hey, it was fun, Jeremy. We'll do it again next month. 
Hey, if you like today's episode, you're going to love my new book, The Art of Selling Your Business. The book was inspired by the cohort of my guests over the years who have been able to negotiate an exit far better than the benchmark in their industry, sometimes two or three times more than I would have expected. I was curious to understand the tactics and strategies of these entrepreneurs and what they do differently from average performers. The result is a playbook for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. To learn more, go to builttosell.com slash selling where we put together a collection of gifts for listeners who order the book. Just go to builttosell.com slash selling. Built to Sell Radio is produced by Haley Parkhill. Our audio and video engineer is Dennis Labataglia. If you like what you've just heard, subscribe to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Just go to builttosell.com. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.